Good morning. We are going to look at this wonderful passage, uh, Philippians 4, 2 to 9. So I'll read it first and um, we will talk about it or preach about it. So let's open our Bibles to Philippians 4, 2 to 9. I plead with Udia and I plead with Sintike to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the course of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. <clears throat> now, I want you to assume that the world woke up this morning to an alien invasion. Now, there's a flying saucer out there floating in the sky with strange beings descending onto the earth, stealing our resources and fighting anyone who got in their way. This alien invasion is not only restricting our freedom and terrorizing us, but it is also a threat to our existence. What do you think we would do? What would we do? Now, <clears throat> I'm sure we'll do quite a number of things, but one thing I know we'll do for sure is we will come together and unite. We would focus on the task ahead of us, what's in front of us, and we will engage with it practically. We will put aside all our social, economic, racial, and spiritual differences and engage in the battle for our survival. There will be no time for, I, don't, I disagree with you, I don't like you, you are not of my class, so I can't work with you, you are too hard, I can't work with you. There will be no time for that. We would all come together, focus on what's ahead of us, and engage with it like earthlings needing to protect the earth. Today's passage is not as dramatic as our alien invasion illustration, no. But I believe it's got lessons which are quite the same as what we are going to learn from today's passage. And I'll show you why. It calls the church to unite. It calls the church to get rid of anxiety and focus our thoughts on things that are good and positive. And it also calls us to practically engage with our world. Okay. Now, before we delve into today's passage, let us have a quick rundown of what we've been learning so far in the book of Philippians over the past few weeks. Philippians is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi while he was a prisoner in Rome. And as Mike has been saying over the past few weeks, it's a book that is fizz that is buzzing and fizzing like champagne you know it's, it's like that this joyful book because there is that theme of joyfulness and rejoicing throughout the whole book 
The first time Paul and his friends visited this Eastern European church in Philippi, to start it, they faced a lot of opposition. The same opposition still existed while Paul was writing this letter. Now, first of all, in chapter 1, he starts off by expressing gratitude to God for the partnership and support of the Philippian church. And then he moves on to telling them how he rejoices and he's joyful in his affliction because God was using everything to his glory. And then after that, he sets the tone for the rest of the book. This is what I think is the foundation of the whole book of Philippians. Philippians 1.27. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so Paul goes ahead in the remaining chapters to give them examples of what he means by the Philippians conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He starts off in chapter 2 where he talks about Jesus, the ultimate example. And we read that today during our song worship for those who were there. Jesus did not count equality with God something to his advantage, but he humbled himself to the cross, dying on the cross and resurrecting again, obeying God to the fullest, showing us a great example of how to conduct ourselves in humility to God. And then he, Paul gives other examples as well of people the Philippian church would know. So he talks about Timothy, who was selfless. He talks about Epaphroditus, who risked his life, nearly died. And he also talks about himself, Paul, how he was going through so much suffering and opposition and difficulty, all for the sake of the gospel. Now, all these people conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then finally, in chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippians to be aware of external and internal opposition as well and tells them to conduct themselves as people whose citizenship is of heaven not of the earth but today i think he starts landing the plane on how the philippians are actually supposed to conduct themselves so one he starts by telling them to unite having the same mind to focus their minds on things that are good by having a safe mind and then he tells them to practically engage in their world. That's having the same attitude as he and the apostles had. So it's have the same mind, have a safe mind, and have the same attitude. Let's start with the first one, have the same mind. There is a Ghanaian proverb that says, meaning if you have a broomstick and you bend it, it easily breaks. But if you have a bunch of them or a collection of them and you try to bend them, they don't break that easily. Now, unity is one thing every team in the world knows is, is needed for success. Whether you take a family unit or a business unit, everybody knows we need unity to forge ahead and to be successful. But even though it is one of the oldest tricks in the book, we are still plagued with disagreements and conflicts today. It's still, it's still very common. Now, our passage starts with Paul telling two women, Eudia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know what caused the disagreement between these women. It could have been doctrinal, it could have been personal, it could have been social. We just don't know. However, I think we get the indication that this disagreement was quite significant. 
let's look at verse 2. I plead with you, dear, and I plead with Syndicate to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, for an apostle like Paul to humble himself to plead with these women individually without preference or blame, calling them by their names, means the issue was actually of great concern to him. Now, Paul also invites a companion to intervene. If the issue was trivial, there would be no need for a third person or someone else to intervene. But because it was that significant, someone had to step in. And then verse 3 tells us that the women labored with Paul, Clement, and other co-workers in the Lord. Yudia and Sintiki were probably high were probably deaconesses or leaders of leaders in the church. And a disagreement between such influential women could result in a blow-up which could bring disrepute to the church. This is why Paul calls for a ceasefire and encourages the church to help these women in settling the matter. Very important to him. Dear friends, disagreements are common and they are inevitable. They would come. Where you have two or more people, they are bound to have differences that could lead to disagreements. Now, disagreements are not bad in themselves, but if they are not checked, sorry, differences, I mean, are not bad in themselves, but if they are not checked, they could lead to disagreements. And if disagreements are not handled properly, we all know that could lead to conflict. And then conflicts can blow up and things start looking very messy. One thing I like about our church, Grace Church Manchester, is that the church is really diverse. It's a diverse church. At one point, I remember not too long ago, we had people from almost every continent represented in the church. Right now, we have people from different racial, social, academic, spiritual, economic, cultural backgrounds in the church. Now, such a rich ecosystem is powerful, and I think it's wonderful too, but it makes our differences stand out. How do we handle disagreements? How do we handle some of these differences? Paul tells us two things in our passage, two main things. One, disagreeing parties must have the same mind. And two, others are to help disagreeing parties achieve unity. We are all supposed to work towards unity anyway. So those involved must actually work together in agreeing and those who are not involved are to also help in achieving unity. To deal with disagreements, we are told to be of the same mind. That's the first thing. Disagreeing parties must have the same mind, meaning they must agree. When it comes to doctrinal issues, I can understand that not all Christians will, will see eye to eye, and that's just the reality. However, I think in some aspects, we can agree to disagree in, without malice, prejudice, or pride. You know, we can work together. However, when it comes to other issues, especially social issues, it, as hard as they may be or as impossible as some may be, we are called to be of the same mind, to come together and agree. Disagreeing parties don't have to wait for the other person to make the first move. Paul pleads with Yudia and Syntyche to equally make the first move without any blame, without any preference. Guys, you need to work together. So there is no need to wait for another person to take the first move. No blame games. We all have to work towards unity. 
And the best medium for settling disagreements, I believe, is talking. Writing is great, but I think talking is better. Talking helps us. It, it, through, talking through issues diffuses assumptions. Assumptions. And sometimes it makes very complicated issues really, really simple when we talk things through. Now, growing up, I was told or I learned that don't be silly was an insult. I mean, a very serious insult. You couldn't tell your daddy, silly daddy, like Peppa Pig says to Daddy Pig. You know, no, that cannot happen. You're in big trouble if you tell your daddy, silly daddy. Now, I also learned that the word abuse is a synonym for insult. So if you have someone with my upbringing telling you that someone has abused them, for all you know, it might be something like, oh, you idiot, or oh, don't be silly, or whatever. And, and that, it might, it might, there might be no intention in, in that. But if you then don't ask any question about that, or if you don't interrogate that or challenge that, you may pass it on and say, oh, somebody has abused this person. And we all know in this country, when you use the word abuse, it, it means a big thing. You know, it's a, it's a serious, heavy, weighty thing. You may get the wrong impression if you don't interrogate and ask further. Now, that's why we need to talk. We have to learn to challenge people's thoughts. And the best medium to do that is talking through issues. Does that mean we have to be self-conscious every time we speak to people? No, I don't think so. We couldn't live like that. It is not possible to always be self-conscious and be aware of what you're going to say and what you're not going to say because you don't want to offend. We, we have to be free to speak our minds out. We have to be free to communicate like brothers and sisters. Therefore, the thing is, when we don't understand something, we must not assume, we must speak openly. A simple question like, what do you mean he abused this person? Or what do you mean by that? Or why is that? You know, very, very simple question could save a relationship, could save, could actually prevent a very big conflict. That is the first point, agreeing. The disagreeing parties must agree. And, through, to, and to do that, we actually need to be talking. The second point is that we need to help people who are disagreeing. So if you're not a party in a party disagreeing with another party, then we need to help if we are in the know. Paul calls someone to intervene. So we know there are people who can actually intervene. If we are in the position to intervene, that is what we must do. Help in bringing reconciliation. But if we are not in the position to intervene or mediate, then we can help by not fueling the fire. We can help by not telling people who can do nothing about it. We can rather pray to God who can do something about it and not rather tell people who can do nothing about it. Or we can tell people who can do something about it. Once we start telling people who, are, who can't do anything about it, we might be fueling the fire. We might be causing a bigger trouble. So. We who might not be part of the disagreeing team, or, well, who might not be disagreeing with others, must actually work towards unity and reconciliation through praying to God for the disagreeing parties or telling people who can do things about it and not fueling the fire. We must also create a safe environment where people can openly talk about issues without the fear of being misunderstood or misjudged. That's extremely important as life groups, as families. We have to really create that safe environment. And until we speak out and iron our differences, we would 
we, we would be hurt because some of these things can lead to bitterness and, 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 and hurt. And we know that usually when we are hurt, we tend to hurt other people. If you have a disagreement with someone and you're beginning to feel offended, bitter, or hurt, can I challenge you to talk to them today or to talk to someone who can help today? Don't let the poison of bitterness and hurt sip in. Please speak out about it. Now, if our minds are filled with anxiety, it will be very difficult as a church or as a body to agree with other people. It will be difficult to unite as well. Therefore, the second point Paul gives them is actually to have a safe mind. This is the second conduct, the second way they can conduct themselves. Have a safe mind. In the early months of 1736, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and his brother were aboard a ship to American missionaries. Now, on the ship, there were other Englishmen, there were some Moravians, there, were, well, there was the crew and other passengers. While on the ship, a terrible storm broke. The main sail of the ship was wrecked, and, the, and all the Englishmen were actually in terror, screaming and wailing for their lives. They were afraid to die. But to their surprise, the Moravians who were singing before the storm broke kept on singing, unafraid. Now, even their women and their children were all singing just as they were before the storm. John asked one of them afterwards, Were you not afraid? He answered, Thank God, no. So he asked again, But were not your women and children afraid? The man replied mildly, No, our women and children are not afraid to die. What? In the midst of a terrible storm, these Moravians had a safe mind, peaceful mind. That surpassed John's understanding. Now, it, it, it happened that this experience had a huge impact on John's life. They were not afraid to stare death in its face. They were not worried. They were not anxious. They were not afraid. Wouldn't you want to have a safe mind? A mind that is safe from external forces, from challenges, from difficulties all around it. A mind that is protected, shielded, and guarded, and safe. Now, I would. Thankfully, we don't have to look too far to know how to have a safe mind. Paul tells the Philippians to do two things, to enjoy a supernatural safety of mind and heart as well. One, get rid of anxiety, and two, feed your mind with good things. Get rid of anxiety, feed your mind with good things. At that point, the Philippian church had a lot to worry about. We have to know that. There was so much they could worry about and actually be anxious about. In Philippians 2, which we did a few weeks ago, we got to know that they were living in a crooked and perverse generation where people's moral compass was warped. That's something to worry about. The people in Philippi naturally had many gods. They did not welcome Christians, so they fiercely persecuted them. And Paul actually faced this during his first visit. So during his first visit, as we'll see, he was beaten, he was flogged and thrown into prison. So that was also happening to Christians. And it was a growing church. It's just a beginning church in the midst of uh, a godless society. <laughs> Quite a lot to worry about. In chapter 3 as well, Paul tells the church to watch out for religious fanatics and comfort seekers who could be enemies of the gospel. 
That was something to worry about. So you see that internally and externally, the church in Philippi faced pressures that could cause a lot of worry and anxiety. But in verse 6, Paul utters this immortal phrase, or this immortal phrase. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Seriously? Brother Paul, is this even possible? <laughs> you know, let's look at verse 6 again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I like that connecting word there, but. Because that but could also mean instead. So let me rephrase verse 6. Instead of being anxious about anything, in everything, by prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. What a lovely passage or verse. Amazing. Every child, every adult should memorize this. In everything, small or great, significant or insignificant, the Philippian church were to talk to God by letting God know all their cares and concerns, and they are to do that with thanksgiving. The implication of this verse was very huge for this church because it meant that if they were even being flogged, which was very likely, if they were facing fierce persecution, which was very likely, they had to not be anxious. You can see how challenging that would be for them. Now, once they've chosen not to be anxious, verse 7 says, automatically, automatically, they don't, automatically, the peace of God, which transcends human reasoning, will guard their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Fantastic. They did not have to pay for the peace. They did not have to fight for the peace. They did not have to pray and fast for the peace. They did not have to work for the peace. All they had to do was eliminate anxiety by praying to God with thanksgiving. In the midst of adversity, opposition, suffering, this church in Philippi was to pray to God with thanksgiving and they would enjoy a byproduct of supernatural peace. Dear friends, in our time of uncertainty, global pandemic, financial losses, travel restrictions, bad news, fake news, social injustice, racial injustice, moral decadence, climate change, social media abuse, heightened corruption, and heightened depression, there is a great need for such peace to keep guard of our hearts and minds. We can enjoy the protection this peace gives only when we choose not to be anxious by praying to God about everything and with an attitude of gratitude. Someone will say to me, well, Adam, you know what? This sounds simple and too good to be true. Actually, it is simple, it is good, and it is true. Quit worrying by praying with thanksgiving and receive supernatural peace that transcends all understanding, guarding uh, your heart and your mind. Now, look at the verse carefully. It doesn't say the peace of God will fill our hearts and minds. I don't think. It says the peace of God will guard, will form a garrison, will keep safe our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the question I am asking myself here is, 
what then do we need to fill our hearts and mind? Because kick anxiety out, it's like you're taking something out that will automatically form a garrison, sort of a protective layer over our hearts and minds. But what then goes in, because usually, as you know, if you don't feel something, something else gets in. So what do we feel it with? And he says, let's look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things, means ponder, means chew upon, means put in, means fill yourself with these things. And we know it's all got to do with the mind. It's all got to do with the mind. The poison of anxiety is to be replaced by things that are true, noble, right, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. He says, think about Think about, put in your mind, let your mind be filled with, meditate on, cogitate, you know, ponder over these things. Each of these attributes is described with the word whatever, which actually meant a lot to the church in Philippi, who lived in a time of persecution, because they would be tempted to be insular. Because they were persecuted, you know, they would be tempted to be insular. And they would also want to think of only Christian things or to actually live in their Christian bubble. But Paul is telling them, guys, therefore, whatever thing is true, pure, just, lovely, admirable, excellent, not just Christian things, not just within the Christian context, but all around you, think about these things. Dear friends, we have also, once we have also been able to eliminate anxiety and uh, 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 yeah, kicked it out through thanksgiving, we are to fix our minds on things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. We have to do that as well. So how do we do that? I think there a few examples would actually sort of would help. So I'm, I'm going to run through a few examples, how we can practically engage with some of these things. God loves us, and he sends Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. This is true. We have to think about this. We humans are custodians of the earth. We are to care for it. This is true. This is something we can think about. I think it's a good thing. It is right to be involved in social justice. This is something we can think about. It is lovely to be hospitable and nice to people. This is something we can think about. A colleague treats you very harshly. It is admirable to treat them in a kind way, not the way they treated you. This is good. Um, yes, it's admirable, and we should think about this. It is praiseworthy to bear one another's burden. This is something we can think about. It is excellent to tell others of the love of Jesus for them. This is something we should think about. It is noble to show graciousness and respect in our social media interaction. This is something we should think about. So to have a safe mind, we have to get rid of anxiety through prayer to God with a grateful heart and feed our minds on good, positive things. These principles are not to be practiced once in a while or when we feel good or when we feel great. No, it should be our lifestyle all the time. We need to consistently work towards having a safe mind, 
by kicking anxiety out. Almost every day, there'll be something that would want to make you anxious. But we have to learn to do it because God gives us the strength to do it. He won't ask us to do something he's not giving us the strength for. He does give us the strength for that and we can't do it. I can understand that someone may be struggling to apply this passage. Maybe you're here, you've been struggling to apply this passage for a while. If you're going through such and you need help with the, the help of a trained counselor to process how to apply this passage, then yes, I will say please get in touch. Probably send an email to the same email we talked about earlier, ask at gracechurchmanchester.net, ask at gracechurchmanchester.net, and as a church we will try to support or we will try to at least point you in the right direction. Now, there is no point in feeding our minds on positive thoughts if these things don't translate into positive actions. It's useless. It's like me saying, well, I think if I eat this food, I'm going to be full and I never eat it. I will never be full. Once we have had these thoughts and all these things, it must actually show in action. Therefore, Paul concludes his passage with a strong call for action. And that brings us to our final point, have the same attitude. Having the same attitude, Paul is talking about an attitude of himself and the apostles and that of Christ. Imagine it is Monday morning. You are running late for work and you're in the traffic with the kids in the, in the back of the car. And yes, you're stuck in the traffic. Now, another driver casts you in a dangerous maneuver. You are very upset and you want them to know that what they did was wrong. So you start rehearsing your mind while you're driving. Just rehearsing your mind how you're going to react when you get the opportunity to actually react to them. And then finally, the opportunity comes a few seconds down the line. And... You want to hell some insults at this person who did the dangerous maneuver. So you start rolling your glass down for a showdown. And then you look closely and you realize that the other driver is actually your boss. Do you continue with the insult and, you know, play out what you planned in your mind? Or do you actually say hello? Now, this question is, uh, 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 I, I mean... Road rage is real, dear friends. Road rage is real. You know, sometimes it just happens. I, I, I know some people are not prone to it, but for me, sometimes it just comes out. Now, at this point, I know that we may not say, you idiot boss, or you silly boss, or whatever. We'll probably say hi, you know, feeling the pain, but we'll probably just say hi. Now, if it was someone else, that's the question. If it was someone else, would you hail that insult or would you have said hello? I know it would probably be hailing that insult at that person. You see, actions are ultimately the expressions of our conduct, regardless of the recipient. Regardless of the recipient. When we are united and we have a safe mind and we fill our minds with positive things, these must translate into positive actions. Let's turn our attention to verse 9. Verse 9 says... Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This verse is just a couple of sentences long, but actually it is a very loaded verse because to fully understand what Paul has learned, uh, sorry, what they have learned from Paul and what they have received and what they have seen in him and heard from him, we have to actually go to Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas visited the Philippian church. That was the first time he visited them. And um, yeah, see his life there, then learn from that. So here's a summary of Acts 16. We, we can't read it all right now. 
right from the get-go, when Paul's feet landed in Philippi, he started talking about the Lord Jesus and teaching the people the way of Jesus and, and, and the way of salvation. This he did for many days. Now, there was um, a slave girl who was possessed by the spirit of divination. And one day, you know, after following Paul and his friends and saying so many things, Paul set her free from the bondage through the power of God and the girl was freed. Now, I thought the master would be happy, you know, the master of this slave girl, but the master was rather upset because his source of income had been severed. So what did he do? He stirred up the whole city and caused trouble for Paul and his friends. They severely flogged Paul and his friends, stripped them, beating them with rods, and then after that, they threw them into prison and asked the jailer to sort of um, make sure they were secure in their, in, their, in their cells. At midnight, Paul and his friends sang and prayed to God. Then God miraculously delivered them from the prison the next morning. Okay. The jailer and his family became Christians and Paul was allowed to visit the new Philippian church before um, he left. So he visited them, encouraged them, and then left. So that's what happened. Through this experience, the Philippians had learned something. They had learned Paul's gentleness and attitude in which he handled hostility and injustice. Paul had lived the life. They, they, they had seen it. Most of them became Christians through Paul's teaching. So this is something they received, the doctrines of the Lord, about the way of salvation. They had received that. They saw in him the life of humility and the way a Christian should live. Through the powerful deliverance of this slave girl, I believe it would have had an impact on them. They saw how God was near to Paul in that experience. These were the things they had learned, received, heard, and seen in him. All these things. Now, Paul tells them to put it into practice. To put it into practice. Paul himself had learned some of these things through the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So he had seen them and he had learned them. And we know that Jesus was the ultimate example of, um, of, of living the life we should. So the charge then is also to us. The things we have learned from Christ, his humility and gentleness. The things we have learned from the apostles in the Bible, the attitude of service and the doctrines we have received we have to leave them out. We have to practice them. We have to do these things by putting them into practice, engaging with our world. As we do these things, automatically again, the God of peace will be with us. We don't have to do anything for that. The God of peace will be with us. We know he's in us, but as we keep on doing these things, we will see God's hand moving supernaturally among us. So when we feel the road rage on Monday morning, we have to remember that we have been called to live a life of gentleness and humility and service. No matter who the offender is, we can let go and let God. A good Christian is not necessarily someone who knows the entire Bible and has committed it um, 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 to memory and knows it by heart, but one who actually practices it over and over we've been told in the Bible. Now, finally, let's look at verses 4 and 5. We've not touched that, so someone may be wondering, this, I think, is the core verse in the Bible. Why haven't we touched it up to this point? Well, we're going to look at it. Verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord 
is near. These two verses are like a belt that ties everything we've learned today together. These two verses. And I give you the reasons why. The modern dictionary actually defines rejoice as feeling or showing great joy or delight. Okay. But in the era of the church in Philippi, the rejoice would have meant to them to make a public celebration. Make a public celebration. You see, in those days, people publicly celebrated either their gods or their emperor or their city or, you know, festivals. Public celebration. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always means celebrate the Lord always. Celebrate the Lord always. How can we celebrate the Lord if we are not united or if we don't have the same mind? It's, it's not possible to celebrate the Lord that way. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't showcase the Lord. It doesn't tell who the Lord really is. How can we celebrate the Lord if we are filled with anxiety, which is a sign of distrust to God, which is a sign of not trusting God? We can't celebrate the Lord if we are filled with anxiety because it means we don't trust him. How can we celebrate the Lord if we are not living out the life he's called us to live? We are not actually celebrating him. It's no way of celebrating him. We publicly celebrate or showcase the Lord when we have the same mind, a safe mind, and the same attitude, like the apostles and Jesus. It is only in doing this that the character, the glory, the beauty, and the power of God is seen through us. It is only by doing this that our gentleness can be known to all men. You see, theoretically, we all know the Lord is near, which is the second part. The Lord is near. But practically, we usually forget it. Now, the Lord is near, I, I believe, means the Lord is close to us. But practically, we usually forget it. So Paul reminds them of it. If it is true, if you truly believe that the Lord is near, you would never allow disagreements to linger longer than they should. If you truly believe that the Lord is near, you never allow anxiety to fill your hearts to betray his trust. If you truly believe that the Lord is near, you would never allow ourselves to deviate from the gentleness and humility he's called us to live. So you see how verse 4 and 5 holds everything together? It's like the belt, it just brings everything together. Celebrate the Lord always. I say it again, celebrate. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The greatest celebration of the Lord was done through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth to showcase and celebrate the Lord. Here are a few verses from the Bible about how Jesus celebrates the Lord. Colossians 2.9 For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives, bodily, lives in bodily form. That's through Christ. The fullness of God lives bodily. Colossians 1.15 The Son, which is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Amazing! Great verse telling us how Jesus is sort of an embodiment of that. Then Hebrews 1, 3, 1, 1, 3 The Son, which is Jesus again, is the radiance of God's glory. Amazing! And the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus, by his very nature, celebrated, celebrated or showcases God. But I think the greatest point of actually celebrating God by Jesus was seen on the cross when he publicly displayed the love of God 
for the whole world to see. Showcased what God's love looks like. Sacrifice. Because of Jesus' celebration of God, we can have the peace that transcends all understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds. And we can have the God of peace living within us, all because of what Jesus did. We may never have an alien invasion in our world. It may never happen. But we Christians believe that there is a war out there that is bigger than any alien invasion we may have. The devil, Satan, is out there to steal to kill and to destroy. He has guarded his army and he has prepared his arsenals against good and against God. But we know that we have victory through Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and rose again to overcome Satan, sin and death. We are not fighting for victory. It has already been won. We are fighting from victory. The weapons of our warfare are not missiles and weapons of mass destruction, no. But the spiritual armory God has given us is to help us live a life of gentleness, humility, and service, just like the apostles and just like Jesus. To take on this victory and to celebrate the Lord, we have to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Coming back to where we started, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We celebrate or rejoice in the Lord by having the same mind, which is unity, a safe mind, which is focused on positive things and kicking anxiety out, and practically living the Christian life. My Christian friends, can I encourage you to celebrate the Lord always, in pleasant times and unpleasant times. Let your gentleness be known to all men. If you're non-Christian, can I encourage you to take your first step, or a step, not first step, but a step towards knowing Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we can enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards, keeps guard over our hearts and mind. And it is through Jesus that we can have the God of peace living within us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Jesus disarmed the principalities and the powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He celebrated you by making showcase of how he triumphed over the enemy. And we know that we have victory in the world through the cross, and we want to celebrate that. We want to rejoice in that. Father, would you help us to rejoice in you always so that our gentleness will be known to all people. Lord, if someone among us is getting offended because of disagreements and conflicts, would you please help them move towards reconciliation? If someone among us is getting anxious because of the pandemic or other pressures of life, would you please guard their hearts and minds with peace as they pray to you with thanksgiving? Finally, would you help us to be doers of your word so that we would always practice what we preach and what you've told us to do? These we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.